Hello, this is Andrew Brewer. I'm the host of the Healthcare Insights in Northwest North Carolina podcast brought to you by Northwest Area Health Education Center at Wake Forest University School of Medicine. Today's guest is Donovan Grant. Donovan is a social services supervisor, community support services and intervention services in Mecklenburg County, North Carolina. Welcome, Donovan. Hi, thanks for having me. Good. So why don't you start out by giving us a little background of your education and training and how you got involved in community support services. My education, my undergrad is in human services that I uh, got from Wingate University. And then uh, my graduate degree is in uh, actually in Christian counseling that I got from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. I'm a licensed, we used to be uh, LPCs, now we're licensed clinical mental health counselors. Uh, LCMHCs. So that's my uh, licensure. And I have been, I actually started with the agency that I'm currently with, with Community Support Services. It's been 20, over 20 years ago now. And I was an intern in my undergrad. Actually, I was at Central Piedmont Community College at the time getting associates there. And that was the internship. And then they hired me. I just kind of moved up the ranks, stayed with the with them over the years, actually worked with uh, domestic violence and the the, the uh, children's program. So I have a lot of contact with domestic violence victims because I was typically working with the the mom of the children. Even though I was working more with the children, I wouldn't have a lot of contact with the mom as well, especially initially. And then I started. I moved over to working with the offenders probably around 2003, and I was a caseworker with. The program that I now supervise, which is the NOVA program, it stands for New Options for Violent Actions, and it is a state-certified domestic violence intervention program in in Mecklenburg County, North Carolina. Tell us what a day in the life of your your occupation, you know, just describe describe what kinds of things come your way and, and, and the tasks that you perform. Every day is different. I'm part of the domestic violence fatality review team here in Mecklenburg County. I'm also a member of the state domestic violence fatality review team. That And what we do on that committee is we look at domestic violence homicides and we look at all the records. So, And there's representatives from really different places in the community. So I'm representing our agency, which is the host agency. But there's also members from, you know, the health care community, uh, the, the, the hospital systems here our school system, the police department, uh, probation, there's a judge, there's uh, the district attorneys. Um, So we're all looking as a really as a community at these homicide cases and really trying to figure out what how what recommendations can we make to the community to uh, prevent this in the future? Where were some gaps if we can find any and where can we make improvements that because we don't want this to happen? And so that's kind of what the the state is doing the same thing, just on the state level. So we're looking at current trends, like what is it that we're seeing from all these cases that continue to pop up? So we want to like target those areas and make recommendations there and see how we can work together that way. Uh, I'm also part of the uh, domestic violence uh, committee here, which is really what they call our uh, meeting with the judges and court personnel here, and that consists of everybody who's really involved in the courts. Basically, a lot of community meetings 
to address domestic violence. And then my own kind of program meetings to run my program meeting with my team. My staff consists of one admin and uh, three uh, caseworkers, one which is a licensed clinician. And, uh, and then I have about, I think I counted 22 temp. They're, they're referred to as county temps, but they're actually, uh, they've been temps for 15, 20 years. Um, but these are my group facilitators. And uh, the way my program is structured is essentially we have, it's, it's psychoeducational groups and they're led by male, female facilitators. This is pretty much the, how all domestic violence intervention programs look. And my, all of my group facilitators, this is like their side hustle, if you will. They all have full-time jobs in the community. Some of them are retired therapists. Some are, you know, they work for the education system, teaching in human services or social worker. So that's their full-time job, but they are very committed to this population, have a real passion for it. That's why they've been around for so long. I think that's one of the things that makes NOVA unique in the state is we, I really don't have any turnover, which is a blessing. Uh, people are very, very committed to this population and the work, and they have a lot of experience that they that they bring to the table, which I, I don't think exists everywhere. Um, so I'm, I'm really blessed to have really, my full-time team is great. Everyone is just, uh, we're, you know, we work very well as a team. And my full-time caseworkers do all the court reporting, case management, that sort of thing. And my licensed clinician does that, and they do all the intakes for people coming into the program. My licensed clinician does that as well, but she also does some clinical therapy with some of our clients who need need that and handles some more of the complex case management cases. And my admin does everything else, which is a lot. Uh, it's, you know, sending out letters to probation officers, social workers, you know, victims or notification letters, things like that. Yeah. Handling the attendance payments, everything. <laughs> That's maybe a long answer to your question, but that the people who come to these group sessions and, and the prevention programs and intervention programs, are they adjudicated? I mean, they're told to come. Yeah, the, the lion's share of our referrals comes from, and this is true across the state, really across the country, I would, I would imagine, come from domestic violence criminal court. So it's usually some uh, condition of some form of probation, whether that's supervised, which is preferable on our end, or, or unsupervised. So that's where a bulk of them come from. So it is, again, a condition of probation. Uh, we also get the probably the second biggest feeder of referrals is from uh, Youth and Family Services, Child Protective Services. That's where we get our second greatest re re referral sources then. We're working to get more referrals from domestic violence civil court. That's something that we used to get many years ago. And that's kind of fallen by the wayside. The part of the issue is the accountability once the judge orders the offender to or, or makes a recommendation for the offender to offend as part of the civil to attend uh, DVIP as part of the civil court order is key at holding them accountable to that. And there was some legislation that came was passed in the end of uh, 2019, which required the offender to report to the DVIP and get enrolled and then we would hand them documentation to take to the clerk, uh, the civil court clerk that would show, hey, I'm enrolled in the, the uh, DVIP, and therefore they would not have to return for a review hearing, which would be set from the court like 30 days out. 
That was passed in 2019 and then COVID hit. Part of the issue there is there's a lot of in-person contact that just went out the window. So it's still a bit of a, you know, an issue. But anyway, domestic violence criminal court is mostly where we get our referrals, youth and family child protective services. We do get some occasional from the civil court and we do have volunteers. We do get take volunteers too. And just to let you know, simple terms of domestic violence criminal versus civil. Domestic violence criminal is where there is a criminal offense. So typically like assault on a female, communicating threats, interfering with 911 calls, whereas a civil court is, is where they're handling restraining orders when somebody goes for what's called a 50B domestic violence restraining order. So that's the, the difference in those courtrooms. I see. So when, when there's a 50B uh, and, and they're referred to counseling, uh, does that reduce the impact of that somehow, or does it just show good faith on the part of the, the person that the 50B is filed against, or, or what, well, what's going yeah, on there? That's kind of what what the issue is, you know, judges holding them accountable to that, whereas if they're coming from a domestic violence criminal, there's, you know, again, there's a probation, so if it's if there's a probation officer, it's conditioned probation, the probation officer is checking, are you enrolled? They're calling us. Uh, is he coming? Is he paying? Is he progressing? What, you know, there, whereas with civil court, they have to set a date, right? And uh, bring that person back in. And there's, I'm, there's some legal stuff that goes with that. I'm a therapist, not an attorney or a legal person, but I, I understand part of the, the issue with that is getting them back in front of the judge that the judges have with, with doing that. And, you know, it does tie up the courtroom a lot if you're, if you're doing that, which is part of the reason the, this, legislation I was talking about was to put the onus on the offender. And if the offender could bring that paperwork, say, I'm in this program. Okay, well, we're not going to have that review hearing because you brought that information to the clerk. And that's that was the thought process behind that. So it didn't tie up civil court like that. But that's the, the I guess to answer your question, though, kind of all around is if they're coming to the program, yes, the, um, what the, our goal is to change the behavior that is causing them to be violent. And we we will say that we're victim advocates because we are victim advocates or survivor advocates, but we just, we're just working with the other side. We're working to, with the perpetrator because we, while survivor services are needed and true necessity for survivors, we believe that the perpetrator services are also a vital necessity because if we don't change his behavior, then nothing's really going to change. Talk to me a little bit about the approach for both maybe in a group setting and individual. I mean, what methodologies or approaches are used in counseling, motivational interviewing, what kind of coaching, that kind of stuff? Can you describe that a little bit? Well, domestic violence intervention programs were used to be called batter intervention programs. We're now domestic violence intervention programs um, in North Carolina. Um, Some, depending on where you are in the country, they were still called batter intervention programs or they have different titles, but basically they're all the same. <laughs> Mostly they're psychoeducational programs and they're built on some different curriculums that are out there that are, these were kind of the, the pioneers, if you will, of, of domestic violence. So the Duluth model, which came out of Duluth, Minnesota, where we get the power and control will and the equality will, that's one of the, the popular ones, the ones that is well known emerge. Um, there's men stopping violence out of Atlanta. Th- those are some of the big ones. So these were the people that uh, really kind of started the work and 
a lot of the, the programs have adopted those curriculums or those uh, approaches. We're in a very interesting time, exciting time for domestic violence intervention uh, programs in the sense that we're really have been, because it's, even though it's, we've been doing this group, Nova's been around over 20 years, there were still a lot of things that we had yet to learn. And approaches have really evolved as we've learned more about working with the population. What we're really looking at now and have been over the past several years is uh, trauma and the impact of trauma on our on the offenders. We talked about it with survivors, but obviously we know that the offender has trauma as well. And it's not defending their choices to be violent. So we do believe that violence is a choice. However, we can't just treat the why are you making this choice without talking about the, the trauma as well. So there's a lot of evolution in our approaches based on trauma. We're also looking at, you know, at how gender roles are looked at, how that's evolved. Because most of the work that we're doing and have been doing over the years is um, very heteronormative, very... Uh, you know, the the men, the man is the offender because statistically, overwhelmingly men are abusive more than women. But we do have women's groups here at NOVA. Not everyone serves women. We do. And also looking at different cultural contexts and different um, settings. So, you know, my program here in Charlotte may look very different from a program in a rural part of the state because you're kind of serving a different community. And so these were things that were not really taken into effect or, you know, into account when these programs were starting to be developed. And so even now, like, as we're looking to how do we serve a population like the LGBTQIA population, for instance, not a lot of material out there for that particular population and, and dealing with that. There are, is some, you know, emerge and some other uh, programs have done work in that, but you know we have we're trying to figure out how do we kind of evolve to be more inclusive. How do we approach cultures differently? Because we've noticed like we have Spanish speaking group. Well, it's not just the language. There's also a cultural difference that we have to address. And you know again, a lot of the, the uh, information can be very you know Americanized, heteronormative, that kind of stuff. So we're, we're trying to a lot of discussions now about how we evolve taking all these things into account and working more holistically with with the perpetrator, more research being done. I think we're in a, a really good place and an exciting time to see how, and we've, those of us who have been doing this and working with this population for years, we know that this has been a need, but now it's really coming to the fact that it, it seems like even nationally, other people are, are seeing this and there's some programs that are doing some innovative work in that we just, uh, had for our NCPAC conference, we just had House of Ruth come out of from Baltimore come in and talk about some of their approaches and how they work with clients. And, uh, you know, they discussed everything from like they they essentially I'll be brief with this, but they met as a team and, and decided, like, who is the abuser? Who do we believe the abuser is? Who do we believe the survivor is? What do we think needs to happen to treat them? So they basically use these belief systems to inform guidelines okay and here, here's how we're going to do the work here's how we've been doing it now that we have these beliefs let's have those inform new guidelines on how we do the work so and then we've had people like from the uh, out of colorado come in 
and talk about the domestic violence risk and needs assessment, which looks uh, something they developed that does look at more of the, uh, the trauma in somebody's life or the Alma Center, which had them come out a couple times. They're very trauma focused in their approach. So really looking at, you know, these different approaches, uh, innovations that are being done across the U.S., how would we bring those into North Carolina to really inform what we're doing? Yeah, that's part of what I've been trying to do over the last several years with NCPAT. Is the group setting a matter of scale, or is there some methodology that is beneficial for people to meet in groups to get? Uh, yeah, so uh, again, and uh, the way these programs were established, again, was some of those programs I mentioned earlier, Duluth and those models, and the, the power control will, the equality will, the things that kind of drove and started this, the, the work that we do, was really very survivor-informed, and that's something that is very key, and we want to keep that. Survivor's voices are what's informing this. So those techniques were really, really kind of came out of hearing from survivors and what they were hearing. The groups are, and they found to be effective was groups of men, typically were women, mostly men, led by the time male, female facilitators, which is how a lot of groups are still structured. And the thought behind that was to model appropriate male-female relationships to these men who have very rigid gender roles and which is plays into some of their violence. And so that that's how they're all structured. So they're psychoed groups. They're usually open-ended groups. Different states have different guidelines on how long the groups are supposed to be. Uh, in North Carolina, the uh, standard is a minimum of 26 weeks. So they have to come once a week for 26 weeks. They have to meet for at least 90 minutes. Uh, at NOVA, we do two-hour groups. So we have a we kind of exceed that expectation there. You can't have more than 16 in a group. So if you look at if you looked at all the DVIPs across the state in North Carolina from like a bird's eye view, we were going to look very similar because those are state certifications and that's what has been determined as best practice. So we're all going by those guidelines where we may differ if you zone in a little bit more um, where we could differ is like how much we charge, for instance, um, because different programs have to charge more or less. The reason that there is a charge is there's supposed to, that's part of the accountability. But again, that that could look a little different. I might be able to charge less because I'm I, I do charge a lot less than most programs because I'm county funded. Most programs are not county funded. <laughs> you know, it could be someone's operating out of a nonprofit or their private. Their funding is going to look different. Some of the protocols to work with clients may be different. Again, we're operating under the same state standards that have, have been set by the state that's been informed by this part. Are there common threads with domestic violence? I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of the usual suspects, uh, substance, substance use, alcohol, abuse, trauma from childhood. Tell us about sure. any common threads. And I know correlation doesn't equal causation, but there's probably some pretty high correlating themes that run across most of, of your clients. Yeah, well, and, and you're right about, and I, I'm glad that you said correlation is not, is not equal to causation, because that's actually very true. One of the things that we say, you know, a lot of people uh, will often tie substance use as a correlation or a cause, and we will tell you that it is never, it, it does often correlate with a lot of our clients. They do struggle with that. A lot of them do. Not all of them do. A lot of them don't. And so, and it's never a causality. 
substance use can definitely uh, exacerbate the situation where, you know, someone may be more violent when they're under the influence than they would be if they were not, but they would still be violent. They would still be using abusive tactics. And that's why we treat those as separate issues, too. If someone has a substance use problem, I know with NOVA, we really want them to get some treatment before they come to NOVA to get, because we feel like that's something that has to be addressed first before we can really address the violence. Now, depending on the level of treatment that they're in, they can do NOVA and the substance use treatment, but we really want to make sure that's addressed. Mental health is, you know, that's something that correlates as well to most, I would say trauma is pretty true across the board. Uh, We do see, I mean, a lot of, you know, our clients were abused themselves as children, witnessed domestic violence themselves, um, grew up in homes where there was just, uh, you know, not clear boundaries, healthy environments. It's not to say that we don't have clients that did grow up in healthy environments, but you can see trauma in some form across the board with, you know, many of our clients. But bottom line, we always said that violence is a choice. You know, you're choosing to be abusive. Uh, it's, it's not someone, something that the survivor makes you do. Right. You choose those uh, abusive behaviors, but it's it's always a choice. Appreciate that. Um, I, I can see how the need to address the more immediate issues like substance use disorder and alcoholism and things like that would be would be paramount before you could make any big differences in men- or in, in in domestic violence specific behaviors. Um, uh, I, I, would, I guess that begs the question: How do you measure improvement or outcomes through if you if you do a twenty six if you got a group that does twenty six weeks? How is that measured? You know, how do you know you're successful? Well, one of the uh, state standards is ongoing assessment, which we do throughout the the program to really kind of assess where the client is. You know, we're looking at where they come in. And I know with NOVA, we do that. It, it, again, different programs may do it a little differently or different intervals. We do it at six weeks, 12 weeks, the 20th week, and then the final week. And so those evaluations, uh, the facilitators, do that. And a lot of times, you know, they will elicit feedback from the group to say, what do you think about John's? Can you inform us on John's progress? Um, they're also uh, obviously adding their own professional opinions on that. What they, again, you know, my facilitators are very experienced. We're also trying to hear from survivors too. I mean, I think that's, that's the big one. Like, you know, if we can, unfortunately, we're not always able to have that contact with survivors. Um, it is ideal, but, you know, what what do they inform us of, of as far as their progress? What are they seeing? Are they seeing change? And this really great when we get that kind of feedback. I, I, I We had one case uh, that came up this year where uh, the survivor was telling us just how great Nova was for her husband and uh, the, so much so that they actually named their dog Nova. <laughs> uh, but they, it just really was, uh, you know, so that we, all of those things kind of inform our, our processes. We do look at recidivism as well. Recidivism is not a great, me- it's a good measure. I don't say, I don't know, I'd say it's good. It is a, it is a measure to really, well, let me back up and say, I think it's, it is a helpful measure, but we also know that it, it can be very flawed because when we're looking at recidivism, we're looking at re-arrest, Right. Well, we also know domestic violence is not necessarily, there may not be physical violence. 
It's also emotional, verbal, because domestic violence is about power and control. And that's not going to, you're not going to be arrested for calling somebody names. We may not see a rearrest after they've completed the program, but I would say what we do here, and again, every program is a little different on how they, they do that, but we look at clients that have been out of the program for at least a year and have they reoffended? Has there been a new domestic violence charge? And we look at our completers versus the clients who didn't complete, who were terminated. And what we find is that over the years that we've been doing that, clients who complete the program are way less likely to recidivate than those that were terminated prematurely. So what is the penalty for, for not completing the, the program if you were uh, adjudicated to be in it? Kind of depends on the judge and what typically it's a probation violation. They could serve some time in jail. That would be the ultimate penalty for, for not completing. Yeah. Yeah. The probation would be revoked and they would, would go to jail. It's a pretty big incentive to go to the program. Yes, it is. It is. Yeah. That's the, well, that's the hope that, you know, would be is a, it is a negative reinforcement, but you know, we do, I would say that we in the, in the programs, we do, try to do a lot of positive reinforcement in, while we're here. I think DVIPs work. I know that we do, and I'm, I, I think I can speak for all the DVIPs. Um, I, I think sometimes there is this uh, misconception by some of the systems that we are just really hard and we just like, you know, we just terminate. You, know, you don't show up and you term, you're terminate because they're only allowed three absences. They're terminated on their fourth. The reality is we do everything that we can to because we want them to be successful in the program. We want them to be able to complete and we want them in this violence. So we will work with them as much as we can. But we do have some clients who just don't show up and consistently don't show up and they're terminated and we bring them back and they're terminated again. And, you know, it's like there's only so much we can do. You know, we want you to be successful. But guess what? You got to attend. You got to be involved and you got to pay. That's just the way it is. If you, if you're not doing that, then you're going to be terminated and you're looking at time. And, uh, that's, that's not something that we want. Um, but you know, that's, that's the way it, it happens. I, and I will say, you know, the number one reason people are terminated from our programs is because they just don't show up. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's an attendance issue. And, uh, you know, it's, again, it's three absences in a 26 week period. But it's a once a week group for six months, and but but that's the standard. And there's accountability in that because you know you here's the, yeah. here's the reality. You did you create you committed a crime. It's a violent crime, and you, that's why you're here. You know it's the clients that we do have that are very engaged and involved and attend and participate. We don't see them again, right? Where clients that don't attend and are terminated and come back and are terminated again, you know, they'll, they'll keep kind of recycling through the system. Yeah. Three absences seems pretty fair, actually. Um, it, it is pretty fair. I mean, it, it is, it's fair. And like I said, we, we try to work with them the best we can, but there has to be, a, I think the, the bottom line of the work that we do is you have to be able to balance accountability and support. We understand that you've been traumatized. We understand that you need this help, right? You, these people can come out of the womb abusive, but at the same time, you have to be accountable for your behavior and what you what you're doing, what you've done. 
And uh, that's, it's interesting because I feel like over the years, and once I've been doing this a long time, the pendulum shift has been so extreme. Like on, you know, years ago, it was, it was a little, it was harder. Like it was kind of, it was more punitive. And now we've swung so far the other way that it's not punitive at all. It's kind of, you know, there, there's too much leeway in, in the system sometimes. So I think, and that's why I'm saying we have to get that pendulum back in the middle because it has to, it has to be both. There has to be the accountability. There also has to be this support. You, you, because you, yeah. like I said, I feel like sometimes the pendulum swung so far the other way that now there's no accountability and that's, that's not effective. And the programs themselves can't do that. We need the help of the community. I mean, it's really, this is a community effort. This involves us and involves survivor services. It involves the, the courts, uh, probation. All of us have to, it's a, you know, I often say it takes a village to work with these cases and everybody working together. And oftentimes we are working in silos, which has uh, been a problem as well. There's plenty of evidence to show that the better your community coordinated response, the, the better your, you know, your domestic violence outcomes in your community. So we have to work together. I would say in Mecklenburg County, I believe that's something we do pretty well. Is there room for improvement? Of course, there always is. But we've always, I've always felt like Novus had a very good relationship with the courts, had a good relationship with probation, YFS, and our survivor services. We're actually part of an agency that serves survivors. And we partner with and the other big survivor agency here to, uh, to cross-train and to attend each other's events. Part of the pandemic, pandemic kind of changed everything. <laughs> We're, you know, but we still uh, work together pretty closely, and uh, that's important. Like I said, being part of these, the, like the DV committee meetings where judges are there and court personnel is there, is for us to to talk about, you know, things that we're seeing and everybody coming from there, where they're coming from, and what they do. Like, hey, this is what's going on with the clerks. Here's what's going on with us, and how do we work together? Because Ultimately, we're all part of the same team to reduce this violence, protect these survivors. Yeah, it's got to be a challenge to, you know, on the one hand, you want to provide support services with compassion and empathy. And then the other hand, there's there's got to be consequences for, you know, the crime. I mean, yeah. and, and you can't just let people get away with not showing up. You know, there, there's got to be, again, consequences. You mentioned, uh, you know, the pandemic. Uh, lead us into that. You know, what were the trends leading up to that? Um, what happened, if anything, uh, has happened since then as far as trends and things that you're noticing? And also maybe how, you know, how, how you were able to accommodate, you know, what you do via technology or, or how you adjusted um, to accommodate the need out there. And then where are you now kind of thing and where do you see it going? This is a big question. So, you know, kind of leading up to then what, what happened during and now where, where are you headed? Like pretty much every other service, everything went to a virtual format. Um, we were forced into that. And one of the things that uh, we were very blessed in is that we got involved, North Carolina, I would say particularly, there was actually an organization, uh, Global Rights for Women, that was sent to us from our governing body, the North Carolina Council for Women and Youth Involvement. And there was a DVIP program out of Italy 
And if you remember at the beginning of the pandemic, Italy was hit pretty hard. Mm-hmm. And they were talking about, hey, essentially, here's what we did. We went virtual. Here's how we did it. And that led to, and there were many people like across DVFPs across the U.S. that were part of that conversation, which, um, you know, there was a national organization called Futures Without Violence. So there, there was other continued conversations about that. And what I really saw from my end was we started with this kind of international um, that went more national that then toned down to the state because then I'm having conversations as the chair of, North, the, of NCPAT, which is the North Carolina Providers of Abuse and Treatment, where we're getting together. And so, and then we kind of honed in on our, you know, different county levels. So, uh, but essentially we all went virtual, but I say all that to say that there were people that went before us that, that did it. And we were, it was really neat. And I'm, I don't know if that'll happen again, but I thought it was very interesting how we all kind of came together in, in that um, time to, to support and listen and talk and have discussions. I, and I didn't really see that so much um, on the survivor side as much, which I thought was really interesting. And that's, I'm, please don't think I'm saying anything negative against survivor services because they're fantastic and wonderful. But I thought it was really interesting how we all, the, uh, the offender services all kind of came together around this and how do we approach this. Anyway, all that to say, we did come together as a team. And so we're, where we're, what we're doing now is really a lot of programs are more of a hybrid model. Um, the uh, virtual services uh, showed us some things that we didn't know because we weren't providing virtual services. And one of the things that we, we did a survey here in North Carolina, and one of the things that we were hearing from clients all over was, or you know, providers and clients, is clients were sharing more than they had in when they were attending the physical group. They felt a little more free to express themselves. Um, so we're hearing things that we weren't hearing before. Very interesting. Clients, some of the attendance was better because they didn't have the travel barriers before that they did before. We were able to go into counties because there were areas in North Carolina where DVIPs didn't exist, and we were able to go into those places because we didn't need to have a physical office there. So we were able to expand our services in ways that we hadn't been able to before. And then, you know, just hearing from the providers themselves and my group facilitators, it was a transition. And some of them were like, I don't, I don't know, I don't really like this. And now they're like, this is fantastic. I love it. And, but, and we're hearing that from the clients too, you know, they, they love to attend uh, virtually. Now we've been doing virtual so long, some of them never intend, uh, attended in person, but we do offer in person. We have, and for some clients who just can't do virtual, but the lion's share, the majority do virtual. And uh, I think virtual is here to stay probably in every area. I think it's just the way things are going. And you know, one of my clients said that the we were already headed this way because telehealth, I know in the therapy world, already existed, just nobody was really doing it or didn't. It was just kind of this thing you heard about. But what the client, my client was saying is we're already headed this way, but the pandemic just forced us all into it, um, into the technology of, of things and more virtual, more because Nova went paperless back in 2017, I believe. It was helpful for us when we had to do that because we weren't dealing with paper anyway. So that was very helpful for us. But I also have a very large program. So we had to kind of slowly roll this out. We couldn't get everybody on. And so we 
did have to close services for a while. And that was something a lot of programs had to do until they could kind of get their footing in this virtual format. Um, and yeah, so it was, it was, it was a difficult transition, but now we're kind of in a place where, okay, this is how we do business now. Right. Uh, it, but it was, I, I think for, you know, all the programs, it was really revamping how you do the work, how you facilitate that. Is the virtual for everybody? No, it doesn't work for everyone. And, you know, I think that's in person is, you know, still needed for, for some folks. Now, I've heard different uh, research on it. I don't think it's been around long enough to really get enough evidence-based research. Um, so I'm hearing different things. I know I was at the American Counseling Association conference, and they were talking specifically about DVIP work, but they were talking about telehealth and how they've done studies where there has not been any difference in outcomes with telehealth versus in-person, that they've had very similar outcomes and sometimes even better. So I think it does broaden how we do things. Um, but then, you know, you'll hear, well, in our field, in-person is best. I think this is going to, there's going to be more research to really show that. But I, as a therapist, I will say the therapy side of me, we, we all kind of have our different um, philosophies or theories because of, you know, a lot of what we do in therapy is based in, in all the different uh, human behavior theories. So everybody has own, their own kind of approach and their own style um, and how they, they facilitate that work. What drives me is what are, what are the clients saying? What are the survivors saying? And, you know, what we're hearing is the virtual is working really well for the clients. That was, we're hearing that from survivors as well. So um, I think it's here to stay in some form. I think it's, it will probably always be hybrid. We'll have virtual and we'll also have in person. I think that's pretty much the way it's going to be. Now, what was the impact of the pandemic on incidents of domestic violence? I've heard various things about it. So just what, what's it like on the ground in Mecklenburg County? Yeah, well, it, the, the cases went up as we knew that it would. Courts are have been really backlogged, and uh, yeah, it's it was it was bad. I mean, you know, everybody's at home. We were all under lockdown for a while, and uh, yeah, we we had a feeling that was going to happen, and that was what was even more important to really get you know our services virtual, uh, offender and and survivor services virtual is so because we need to be able to access. If you can't come in physically, we got to we got to get this to you some way. And and there and not to say that there, like I said, there's have there been challenges to virtual, absolutely. <laughs> now how how do y'all how do you know what the pipeline is like? I mean, I know you could probably you probably pay attention to national trends and local trends and stuff, but how do you know what's coming your way as far as volume? I don't really know as far like uh, if you're talking about like the influx of clients or not. I, you know, in my experience here at Nova at least, it's that you know, that's a roller coaster. Sometimes we get we're just flooded with referrals, and then other times, not so much. Um, and it's always kind of been that way. You know, I there's a point where I'm looking at uh cutting groups because we don't have enough clients to where you know, then I'm adding them. Um, I just added, I've added well, this kind of shows you the volume of domestic violence. I've added three groups this year, mm -hmm. um, just added my third. Um, and um, including two, two of them are uh, actually two of them are Spanish speaking. So uh, which is which is an interesting trend. We saw more um, Spanish speaking clients come to us when the pandemic started. Yeah, it's uh, you know, I, I can't really say, oh, I can foresee it 
you know, like the weather, <laughs> uh, I kind of can get an indication because I know domestic violence services have increased, but how that's going to show up on, on my doorstep, I'm not really sure until it really kind of gets here because I wouldn't have been able to see from, from my end at least, oh, we're going to have an increase in Spanish-speaking clients. So what would be a, the number one tip that you would give to other healthcare professionals working, you know, nurses on the front lines, doctors, physicians, you know, anyone uh, that interfaces uh, clinically with patients? Um, what would be the number one tip to prevent domestic violence? Like if they recognize like something that looks suspicious, but they don't have enough to substantiate um, any specific action. You know, what, what is some piece of advice that they could give their patients that, that might have an impact, a positive impact in their, in their home life? Well, I would say, number one, you don't ever want to discuss domestic violence uh, in front of the perpetrator uh, with the survivor from the perpetrator. You know, you should always address them separately. And um, I would have them be really clued into the resources that are available for survivors in their community and refer the survivors to those resources. Offenders typically are not going to come unless there's some kind of fire lit under them. But again, we do get volunteers. We do get volunteers. But um, I think that the main thing, and again, you know, what we do in DVIP work on this side, it's really about survivor safety. And so I think the number one tip I would say is keeping that survivor safe and, you know, giving her resources that, you know, we have in Mecklenburg County, we have these little resource cards that we would give survivors something they could hide or where he can't see it and perpetrator can't see it. And I, I think it's, you know, believing what she tells you, letting her, you know, providing a safe space for her and being able to provide those resources and knowing that she may not take access to those because survivors are the expert of their own experience. So even though you may provide them a resource to get a restraining order to, to, be, to get plugged into victim services or a shelter, they may not be ready for that and that has to be respected. Marvin, I appreciate your time today. How can people uh, find out more about uh, community support services in Mecklenburg County? Well, you can go to our website, Mecklenburg County Government, and you may have to do some digging more into departments, and it is community support services. If you want to know more about domestic violence intervention programs in the state, I would encourage you to go to uh, NCPAT, which is our website. NCPAT is the North Carolina Providers of Abuser Treatment. Um, and so we're a membership organization of different domestic violence intervention programs across the state. We have quarterly meetings and we try to uh, bring in, in people that are doing innovative work to kind of inform the work that we're doing. So, um, and there's links on our, our webpage, uh, the North Carolina Council of Women and other organizations that we work with or have are doing this work across the, the state and the country. Well, great. Again, I appreciate your time today, Donovan, and I'll link uh, all those websites in, in the uh, description for the podcast link. And um, thank you for all the work you're doing. All right, man. Thank you. Thank you for having me.